Welcome to the HR for Small Business podcast, where we discuss HR best practices, hot topics, strategy, and employment law changes that affect small business. I'm your host, Brandon Laws of Zenium HR. Our website is www.zeniumhr.com, where you can follow us, read articles, listen to our recent podcasts, or contact us. Thanks for listening and enjoy the topic in this episode. I'd like to welcome Iris Tilly to the show today. Iris is an attorney at Baron Liebman LLP in Portland, Oregon, and specializes in ERISA compliance, employment law, advice, and litigation, and much more. Welcome, Iris. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to discuss one of the hottest and most confusing topics in the business world, which is the Patient Protection and an Affordable Care Act, which to most people is known as health care reform. Iris has become one of the most well-known experts on this subject in the Portland area and regularly speaks to business leaders regarding the upcoming changes. So Iris, there's, there's so much information out there, so let's, let's try to simplify it a little bit. At the basic level, what should an employer know up to this point? So we're looking back when it was passed, 2010 up till 2012. I think the biggest thing that employers need to know at this point is that healthcare reform is happening. It's it's moving forward at this point. The Supreme Court decided earlier this year that it is constitutional. And if we do see any type of repeal of the law, it won't be until President Obama's administration is done. So all these changes in 2014 and looking forward to, you know, these big shifts that are going to take place in the insurance market, we're actually going to see them happen. And so I know a lot of employers have kind of been holding off with some concern that maybe things will change or hoping that things will change. But um, it's full steam ahead at this point. There are some requirements for 2013. What are what are those requirements for employers? For 2013, the big changes are, the first one that comes up is actually the W-2 reporting requirement, and this is for your 2000 news. And for the first time, employers are going to be required to report the cost of their group health coverage on those W-2s. And these are the 2012 W-2s that employers are going to be issuing in January of 2013. Any W-2s that were issued during the middle of the year in 2012 didn't in any way have to have this reporting. But what this reporting is, is it's both the amount that the employer pays and the amount that the employee pays. And it's for all major medical coverage. And then the IRS has put out, but generally most of your general medical benefits are included. There are some exceptions for if you have a dental plan that's not bundled with the rest of your plans, and there's an exception for that as well as some other types of coverages. But that's a big requirement that employers have had to make some shifts on. It doesn't actually at this point change the taxability of coverage, but it is going to be a result. And then in addition to that, we have the new Medicare tax. And this takes effect as of January 1, 2013. And the new Medicare tax is a tax of 0.9%, so just under 1%. And how employers have to deal with that 
is that they actually have to take the tax off any income that an employee earns over $200,000. The actual tax is kind of broken up and has different limits based on filing status, but the IRS realizes that employers don't have filing statuses for their individual employees. So the IRS has just said $200,000 and up tax has to be. And so those are kind of two of the big employer side requirements for 2013. There are also... Um, some issues that are going to be coming up in terms of the summary of benefits is something that employers have started to provide, and then some employers are kind of just moving into that requirement now. But for most insured plans, we see that really coming from the insurer side of things, and so that hasn't been as big of an issue for the individual employers. And then I guess um, kind of the final piece for 2013 is all the planning that's going to have to take place for 2014 because that's really the big year for healthcare reform. It's when we have the exchanges open and the individual mandate takes effect, and then we also have the pay or play mandate for employers. And so all of those requirements take effect in 2014, so employers really have to take this year to examine their plans and determine how they want to address 2014. What's interesting to me is that back in 2010 when we were just starting to talk about this, 2014 seemed like like light years away and now we're actually approaching 2013 we're a week away and then mm-hmm. 2014 is going to be here before we know it so my question to you is what is required of 2014 or what do we know up to this point and then what's really uncertain about 2014 we know about 2014, first of all, Brandon, I completely agree. When this law came out, 2014 seems so far away. And I kept thinking, well, they're going to postpone things. You know, it's, there's going to be a big change. Something may not occur. And it looks like at this point things are moving forward. But for 2014, what's going to happen is there will be a large shift in how insurance operates just within the market, both for individuals and for businesses. And how this works is that there are really three aspects of healthcare reform that take effect. And as I mentioned, we have the healthcare exchanges, and I'll explain a little bit more what those are. We have the individual mandate, and then we have the pay or play mandate. And so what the healthcare exchanges are, there are these state-based systems that individuals and, at this point, small businesses will be able to purchase insurance through. And the exchanges are – they're – well, different states are kind of operating them in different ways, but Oregon has really attached onto this system, and Oregon has already started to develop their exchange. They have it ready to roll out, and individuals and small businesses will be able to start purchasing insurance in October of 2013 with an effective date of January 1, 2014. Other states have deferred to the federal government, and so the federal government will be providing a state or an exchange system for those states, but all states will have access to some type of exchange, which is really, it's an insurance clearinghouse. And the idea is that whoever is purchasing the insurance, whether that be an individual or a small business, that they'll be able to compare policies and ultimately get what is supposed to be a better rate on those policies because we'll have the volume of all of those individuals and all of those small businesses purchasing through the exchanges. And it definitely remains to be seen how ultimately well this will work and what kind of rates we'll be seeing. But the goal is that we'll be seeing some economies of scale. One of my questions for you was going to be on the economic side of it. When you have an exchange and they're actually competing with the private market, what do you think it's going to do to the price levels? 
In the private market, I think what we're going to see is that pretty much all insurance for individuals is probably going to move toward the exchange. We'll have some specialized plans or potentially, you know, more premium plans that will be available outside of the exchanges, but the private market will probably ultimately really move toward the exchange model. It's interesting because the exchanges actually require a lower level of coverage than most employer plans provide at this point. In order to qualify as an exchange plan, you have to provide 60% coverage, which I think if most listeners were to look at their employer-provided plan, they'd see that it probably covers more in the range of 80%. And so it's a lower level of coverage, but we're going to be seeing tiered plans on the exchanges. And ultimately, I think that most of the small employer market and then also the individual market will end up transferring over to the exchanges just because it will be too much for most of these health insurance companies to be operating with that many different plans. They'll just end up losing some of the economies of scale on that. And so in that effect, the pricing is going to be driven by what that pricing is on the exchanges. Can you talk a little bit about the penalties? I, I keep hearing that as if if uh, an employer doesn't offer a certain plan, if they're at a certain threshold of the number of employees, that they could incur some penalties. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that. So the penalties, I think, are probably one of the scarier pieces for the employers who, who I deal with. And how the penalties work is that there are three different kinds of penalties. And there are a lot of pieces of healthcare reform that kind of require you to get out your 10 key calculator or remember your algebra. And this is, this is one of those. And so how it works is if an employer elects not to offer coverage, and that, and when I say coverage, I mean health insurance or health insurance that kind of qualifies for what the requirements are. But if a health, if an employer decides not to offer coverage and that employer has 50 or more employees, then that employer may be subject to a penalty. And what the penalty is in that particular case is it's $2,000 per employee, except for you get the first 30 employees free. And you're only required to pay the penalty if you have at least one employee that goes out and buys coverage from the exchanges and gets a tax credit or a subsidy. And so usually what happens is you would have, if you have some lower paid employees, those employees are likely to go out and get that assistance in order to purchase coverage through the exchanges. And then you would have this trigger of $2,000 per employee on all of your employees minus the first 30. And so I know it's kind of a, funky little math equation, but that's how the penalties work if you don't offer coverage. If you elect to offer coverage, but that coverage is insufficient, and it can either be insufficient because it's considered unaffordable under healthcare reform, or it's insufficient because it doesn't cover that 60% of essential benefits. In either of those situations, the penalty works a little bit differently, and it's triggered by if any time an employee goes out and purchases insurance from the exchanges and gets either that tax credit or the subsidy again, and those are driven by income. Then in that particular situation, the employer would have to pay $3,000 per employee who actually purchases coverage through the exchange. So the distinction is if you don't offer coverage, the penalty is a little bit lower, but it would apply to all of your employees minus the first 30. If you do offer coverage but it's insufficient, the penalty is $1,000 higher, but it would only apply to those employees who actually go out and purchase the coverage. 
let's take a step back and from a reporting standpoint or just from kind of an analysis standpoint, what are employers doing? Maybe nothing at this point, but when they get to that point where they're going to either elect uh, to choose the exchange, go on the private market, or maybe not offer coverage at all, how does that all work and, and what do the employers need to do? How we've been talking to employers about this is the first thing to do is really to look at your so look at the number of employees you have. And if you have 50, if you have less than 50 employees, then the decision is really just what makes the most sense for you from a monetary standpoint. Because you don't have to worry about penalties at that point. And if you're an employer with 100 or less employees, you'll be able to purchase coverage through the exchanges right away if that makes more sense than going through your broker. And so that makes that, that makes for the analysis to be a little bit simpler. For employers who actually consider during dropping coverage, then it takes a little bit more of a consideration of your workforce. I mean, how with how these penalties work, they're so low that in pretty much every instance, an employer is going to be paying less if they pay penalties than if they pay for health insurance coverage. And that even takes into account the fact that the penalties aren't deductible from a tax perspective and health insurance coverage is. It's just health insurance coverage is expensive. And so from just a straight dollars and cents perspective, most employers see that they're better off dropping coverage. The issue is that not all workforces will really tolerate that type of that type of behavior. Some employer some employees may choose to leave for a competitor. And so what we find is that most of our clients are either thinking about looking at purchasing coverage through the exchanges, or they're having a little bit more of an interactive conversation with their employees to determine whether or not those employees would be comfortable making a purchase through the exchanges. I suspect that we're not going to see a lot of employers really make that move immediately in 2014. They're going to want to wait and see how the exchanges actually work and whether the coverage seems to be something that's palatable to employees. And then moving into 2015, we might see more movement. I was going to say the same thing. I think from a a cost standpoint, it makes sense that for the employers over 50 that they just take the penalty. But speaking from the HR side of things, culture is huge. And I think employees would be likely to move employers if, if they're not getting the full benefit package and having the answers right there at the office. No, no, that, that's absolutely true. And that actually kind of leads into another piece of all of this, which is the non-discrimination testing. Because one thing that healthcare reform does is that it requires insured plans. And these are plans that are offered through an insurance carrier like Blue Cross or Kaiser to engage in non-discrimination testing that's similar to what has already been required for plans that are self-insured, which these are plans that the employer pays for the cost of the claims themselves. And we've been waiting on regulations on this, and so it hasn't gone into effect. But we're expecting to see regulations in 2014 and then for this to go into effect in 2014. And the reason that this is relevant is that some employers have been asking us, well, you know, we have this group of executives and we really want them to stay, but we'd like to drop coverage for everyone else and go ahead and, you know, gross up their pay or however they want to handle it in order to allow those employees to buy coverage through the exchanges. But the problem is that those employers will then get hit with a penalty for the non-discrimination testing. And so that's just, it adds another 
some wrinkle to that HR analysis. Yeah, and from the administration part of the discrimination testing, how how are companies going to be responsible for something like that? Is it a monthly report? Is it just at open enrollment? Uh, employers are submitting who's electing and who's not. How does that work? You know, if only we knew. <laughs> There's a lot so, of uncertainty out there, isn't there? <laughs> exactly. So um, how what we know at this point is that the IRS has said that the non-discrimination testing is going to look something like the non-discrimination testing that's already in place for self-insured plans. And what that means is that we know it's going to be non-discrimination in terms of income, and we're going to be looking at the highest wage earners within a particular company. This isn't non-discrimination testing in kind of your employment discrimination standpoint where you're looking at protected classes. But we don't actually know the the specifics about how it's going to operate in terms of when the testing will take place, how often employers need to look at it. That should all come from those regulations that, you know, we're expecting any time. I think that they'll, they'll probably be coming out in early 2013, and then we'll see that they won't be effective until January 1, 2014. It's just that that's kind of my guess at this point. Will the discrimination testing actually vary by state, or is it from the federal standpoint? That's a good question. It's from the federal standpoint, and so we shouldn't see any variation by state. So switching gears a little bit, on November 27th, you actually wrote an article about some of the new proposed regulations by the Obama administration, and in that write-up you had, you talked about wellness programs, exchange coverage, and insurance market reforms. Can you talk a little bit about that article and some of the things that may be coming down the hopper? And actually, can you start with the wellness programs first? I think that's the, one of the most interesting parts. Definitely. You know, I think that the wellness programs are the piece of those regulations that are most relevant for employers. And so in large part, the wellness program regulations left what was already in place under the under HIPAA unaffected. And so most wellness programs that already exist are going to be largely compliant. Where we saw changes, however, is that the maximum reward that's available under a wellness program increased from 30% or increased from 20% to 30% rather. And so the distinction with that is that we've always been allowed to offer benefits to employees to participate in wellness programs, but now that benefit's just bigger. And so that was one key piece of the regulation. But the other piece, and this is where existing programs might not be compliant, is that these wellness programs, and they're called standard-based wellness programs, which means that in order to obtain a reward, an employee actually has to meet a particular health standard. And so I realize that kind of is a little bit Greek-sounding. And so to explain that further, what that would mean is in order to get that discount on health insurance, the 30% discount, the employee would need to walk a 5K or attend a health education class or whatever it was that the employer set up as that requirement. And it's always been the case that employers have had to allow employees to meet that requirement through alternative standards. If an employee is unable to walk a 5K, then the employer has to entertain other options for the employee to be able to meet that standard. However, what the new regulations actually require is that they require that employers make this option explicit on the face of the wellness program, and that also employers pay for some portions of these alternative standards. And so if an alternative standard is that an employee could participate in a weight loss program, 
the employer is actually required to, in some instances, pay for the cost of membership in that program. If the program is a Jenny Craig type program where the employee would actually receive food, the employer doesn't have to pay for the food, but the employer does have some obligations to actually financially assist the employee in meeting those additional requirements in order to get the in order to get the benefit. And I should also mention another piece that changed with these new wellness program requirements is that the benefit can actually be up to 50%, and this is the cost of coverage for programs that are designed to prevent or help an employee quit smoking. And so there's a real target on tobacco use. So really what I hear you saying in, in all this is that employers, when they have a wellness program, they need to offer a lot of options and they need to sponsor some part of it. Because if you have minimal choice for somebody who really can't do a certain part of it, that you're going to put a target on your back for some sort of penalty. Is that kind of what you're saying? That That's definitely accurate. If you don't want to offer, one thing, employers do have some flexibility in that. If they don't want to list out every single option that an employee could potentially take in order to receive the benefit, they can also just state that employees can come to them and let them know if they can't meet one of the requirements in order to get the benefit, and they can work directly with that employee to come up with something that will work. For employers who are actually in the midst of launching a formal wellness program, what sort of things do they actually need to keep in mind when they're going to launch it? I would say that um, one of the key issues is just don't rely on a stock document that already exists. I know that there are various wellness programs that you can find via Google, and they're just not going to be updated for the new requirements. So the key issue is just making sure that the information is updated. Another piece, and this applies to wellness programs regardless of the new regulations, is that employers that I've worked with have found that it's really helpful to talk to employees and find out what they actually want from their wellness program before putting it into place. It can seem like kind of a hassle to go around and you know, survey people or have needs can seem like a lot of process. But we found that wellness programs are far more effective in helping employees actually stay well, not miss that work time, and be more productive if they include benefits that employers are actually really interested in. Anything else about the article that you wrote on, on the exchange coverage and insurance market reforms? One other piece that um, that was kind of hidden in the midst of the regulations is a requirement that insurers pay a special fee. And so how this fee works is that it's a $63 fee per participant in the insurance plan. And the fee is actually designed to cover pre-existing conditions because health care reform contains a requirement that starting in 2014, insurance plans cover pre-existing conditions, which historically they've been able to, they've had some rights to exclude some of these conditions. And so in order to help pay for that, there's a $63 fee that starts taking effect in March. And why this fee matters for employers is because self-insured employers actually will have to pay the fee directly. But employers who offer coverage through an insurance carrier will end up seeing that fee passed down to them. And the fee came as kind of a surprise to a lot of insurers and employers. No one was really expecting the fee to be quite that high. And so that's one piece. Um, It's $63 a year, but once you're multiplying that by all of your employees, it ends up being a pretty substantial chunk. So for the next two years, we have likely a lot of change happening at both the state and federal level. What can a small business owner expect to actually happen? And what sort of steps can they take to mitigate the risk of doing something completely wrong? 
No, that's a that's a great question. It part of this depends on how you define small business. Healthcare reform hopefully defines small business in about four hundred different ways, which is <laughs> frustrating, I think, from the employer's standpoint. Um, just to run through a couple of those. For very small businesses, and these are businesses in the in the range of 25 or less employees that have lower wage bases, those employees still or those employers still have some ability to get a break for the small employer tax credit. That's something I think that's gotten a little bit lost in the shuffle, but that's something that's still available to really small employers, but they have to be pretty low wage earners. The average is only $50,000 per for everybody within the company. And so very, very few employers meet this because typically you have managers and people who are leading the company who are making far more than $50,000 a are year. These, are these wage limits that are defined by the federal government at this point? They are, yes. And um, for smaller employers that are a little bit larger, employers with up to 100 employees can actually purchase coverage through the exchanges. So one easy way for a smaller employer to know that they're complying with health care reform is just to go ahead and look at purchasing coverage through the exchanges for 2014, because they'll know that those policies meet the required definitions for essential health benefits, that they require that they provide the level of coverage that's necessary. And then beyond that, if they want to provide additional benefits to certain key employees, there are always ways to do that on a post-tax basis. And so employers can kind of supplement their coverage through those type of mechanisms. In order to just retain a compliance standpoint, I mean, one thing that small employers can do is they can just make sure to do a lot of, a lot of reading. And there's a lot of information available that is not necessarily accurate. However, the Department of Labor does a good job of summarizing when new frequently asked questions come out. And so if you go to the Department of Labor's Employee Benefits website, there's a link for healthcare reform, and that's a great place to get good summary information. I know that we also, as a firm, send out electronic alerts. Those are free to anybody who wants to subscribe to them. So people can certainly contact me, and I will go ahead and have them added to the list. And we try anytime anything new comes out to just send you know something that prints out on a page or less typically out to employers just to let them know what's coming up. And then the third piece for smaller employers is just keep in touch with your third-party administrators, your brokers, whoever it is that you work with, whether that be your attorneys, your brokers, your third-party administrators on your benefits issues, and they should be able to keep you informed. It's really their job to make sure that they're always up to date on the newest items coming out. One little piece that we really didn't touch on, or maybe you did a little bit, was the definition of a full-time employee. Is that different than, so let me retract that a little bit. Does the federal government or this, or this at the state level, do they define a full-time employee differently than what an employer may define it in their handbook? Yes, that that's actually, that's a huge issue. And so the full-time employee for the purposes of health care reform is somebody who works 30 hours per week. And this is relevant for several points of health care reform. The first being that a full-time employee who's offered coverage, a lot of employers define full-time as 32 hours per week, 35 hours per week. After January 1st, 2014, it's going to be 30 hours per week. And that's relevant for who you offer coverage to, but it's also relevant for the way that you count your employees to determine whether or not you have 50 employees for that penalty provision for that cutoff. And how that works is that the IRS actually has employers take all of their part-time employees and add up their hours. 
and then you aggregate that out to determine how many employees you have who are working 30 hours per week. So you may have 20 part-time employees, and those part-time employees may equate to 15 full-time employees. And you actually have to take that 15 number and add it on to your other full-time employees to determine whether or not you have 50. Anything else that employers should know? I, I know this is just overwhelming for a lot of people, and they don't know where to go for a lot of this information. So what, what's a good step for uh, just understanding this in general? I think first, the, the key thing to remember is we're still waiting, waiting a lot of clarity on this. And so there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. As we see more regulations come out this year, employers are likely to hear a lot less from their guidance, from the people who are guiding them in this process of I don't know or we don't know that yet and a lot more of this is actually how it's going to work. And so that's just one piece is that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. If employers are looking for resources, as I mentioned before, some great resources are the DOL's website. There's also healthcarereform.gov, and this is supposed to be the be-all and end-all for information on healthcare reform. I found the DOL website a little bit more helpful because healthcare.gov has a tendency to be a little bit more just trying to sell the healthcare law, and it's more about why it's great and less about what actually needs to happen. And so the DOL website, as I mentioned, has some great resources, as well as we try to alert employers to when anything new comes out through our electronic alerts. Iris, how can people get a hold of you and what's your website and just give out any any information you'd like? Oh, absolutely. Our website is barron, B-A-R-R-A-N.com, but anyone can always feel free to email me. It's itilly. T-I-L-L-E-Y at Barron, B-A-R-R-A-N dot com, or you can give me a call at 503-276-2155. Our guest today has been Iris Tilly of Barron Liebman. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brandon. Happy holidays. This podcast is produced by Zenium Resources, Inc., all rights reserved. For information on guests or for interview requests, please visit www.zeniumhr.com or email info at zeniumhr.com. Everything on this show should be considered educational and informational only and not personal advice. Please consult with the appropriate tax, legal, or business professional for individualized advice.